Warning, this podcast does contain explicit language and some content that may not be suitable for all listeners, since we do talk about mental health and all that entails. Thank you. Everything is fucked and everything sucks and the system is a nightmare, but we want to make it better. Hi, Julia. Hey. Hey, what's up? Oh, you know. I don't know. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Jaded and Sedated podcast. I'm Andrea. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Julia. I also use she, her pronouns. And we are podcasting from Ohlone Land, which is called Santa Cruz right now. Um, And we have a really special, exciting episode today. I pulled out my weird family album that my mom made me and flipped up into some old pictures of my grandmother who worked for child welfare when my mom was growing up. And then nobody talked about it (laughs) when I was growing up. Well, you left, I'm going to back up for a second here because you left out the incredibly important detail that the cover of this photo album is like from Andrea's beach senior year photo shoot where <laughs> she has like beachy curls and she's like splayed out and there's like, like a pier or rock behind you you could tell there's waves crashing vibes, like 18 yes. year old <laughs> read too much cosmopolitan magazine by the time she was 13 <laughs> like definitely creeps me out wanted to leave it but it is a beautiful picture <laughs> I feel super lucky that we have all these like family photos because it is Because my family's full of like black holes, like people went away and we don't know what happened to them. But Mm. somehow there are these like black and white photos that can be like, come to me, Grandpa Paul, in my dreams. That is lucky because my parents, we don't have a lot of photos. Part of the reason is because our house burnt down when I was three, the garage specifically, not the whole house. Um, But they lost a ton of like photos and and memories and nothing happened before 1995 (laughs) I think it was yeah you're right I think it was actually 1995 Wow, incredible you intuited that who's the psychic now (laughs) um so anyway (laughs) like I was saying um we so working in psychiatric emergency we do interface every once in a while with child welfare when we're filing a report of suspected abuse but Child welfare has meant nothing to us besides a a very involved phone call reporting like horrific details of Mm -hmm. people's stories. Um, And so we luckily were connected with a special guest who has worked for child welfare for 18 years. And her name is Elizabeth. You can introduce yourself. Oh, (laughs) hi. Um, Yes, so... I know that I don't look like I'm old enough. I've worked in child welfare for 18 years, but I feel old enough. Yeah. Like in my bones. Um, You have the wisdom of like the grandma everybody wants. Like, I just want to, I just want to spend the rest of my life with you. (laughs) I just want to be like one of those fun, crazy grandmas. Yes. Um, So I have, I've worked, I've held actually kind of 
a huge variety of roles. When I started, I was in um, direct care services and residential care here um, in this county. Um, I went on to What does my- that mean? So basically, they used to be called group homes. Um, mm. And then we had a federal continuum of care reform where we really had to limit the group care settings for, it was typically teenagers or children with kind of like higher acuity placement needs, like suicidality, mm. physical aggression, property destruction. Um, so they used to be called group homes. They're now, they're now called short-term residential placements, STRTP. We have like a whole vernacular that we use at. (laughs) Well, I always love like the, when people have been involved in these systems of care for a long time, because you've seen, I mean, how much can change how quickly, and sometimes it's just acronyms that change and like nothing else has changed, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it's like these huge legal reforms and stuff that. Was there one recently that happened? Because there was a change where they had to incorporate therapy or something like that, or some aspect into I think it was like the receiving so there it so it's the continuum of care reform happened on a federal level and the way different states have interpreted that federal legislation it really vacillates greatly across the country Mm -hmm. um and here in California I'm less familiar so I practice here in California I did the majority of my child welfare work in Texas and now I'm back in California um and so Typically what happens with kind of federal mandates is each state interprets it, they implement, and um, but overall the group care, congregate care settings have been dismantled kind of across the board. And so there used to be like treatment facilities that would have like 32 beds and mm. kids kind of like stacked on top of each other. Mm. We had a smaller residential facility. I think there was like, We had six kids um, here, and that's where I kind of started, like, with the direct care practice, working one-on-one with the kids that I was, like, seven years older than, (laughs) 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 you know, um, filling in this role of a parent. Um, Yeah. We did a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, points-based systems, which were, like, very big in that. Yeah. What do they call that? Like the um, token economies and mm-hmm. stuff? Mm-hmm. I'm just back up. I'm like getting Queen's Gambit vibes of <laughs> like the, the receiving home. Oh my God. Did you watch that show? I did not. That is that the one with the kid who with was the like chess the, player. Okay. So because I feel like my work life is, I'm so saturated in like child welfare. Yeah. In my personal life, I really try, like, not to do that for entertainment because I typically end up, like, yelling and being like, that's not how it is. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> and this this interpretation might be far enough removed from reality okay. that it might be enjoyable again yeah. for you because I'm the same way with psych stuff. Like, I can't watch anything that's going to remind me yeah. of my work. And I think there was, like, a point in my career where I could tolerate more trauma porn. Mm. And now I'm just like... Oh, like the world is so dark and gray and I tend to still like have this eternal optimism that I feel like I have to really be more Guard mindful it. of my media. Yeah. 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 I watched Ratatouille the other day <laughs> 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 and it couldn't have been more perfect. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. So I started off in residential care. Um, 
And then I went to Texas and got my master's degree. I worked in child welfare there. I did direct service work um, with kids who were in the care, custody, and control of the state of Texas. Um, Then my career kind of transitioned into placements where I was part of a team who supported 30 counties in central Texas. Wow. And we would, yeah, like we would locate all like the foster homes and the shelters for kids. Um, And then after that, I supervised that unit. I did a lot of like placement policy for Texas and implementing it and training people. Um, I think I had kind of a unique philosophical approach to the work. Um, I think placements can be kind of an underutilized aspect of child welfare Mm. because you don't like when you're doing hundreds of placements, thousands of placements a month, you don't meet the kids. Mm. Um, And I think as a social worker, I really tried to, humanize and personalize the information that we were sending out and make make sure that as a team we were being ethical we weren't just blanket emailing across the board that we were like strengths-based yeah and so I think that and I I did that and then I came back to California and now I'm doing direct care work again like direct practice social work for kids who um, the county has custody of and their families do you want to talk about why on earth you chose the most difficult job in the entire world? Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about that. So I actually had a police officer the other day. I was, you know, had to file a police report through, for work. And he was like, God, your job sucks. <laughs> and I was like, you know, like the whole country's in like an uprising. <laughs> Yeah. Regarding law enforcement and even you think my job sucks. Okay, cool. Oh man. Um, so I think as a social worker, that's it's not what I do, it's who I am. And I think I've been training to be a social worker for a really long time. Um I did come out of a family that has kind of a I don't wanna say unique. I it's hard because you realize how not unique things are once you've like worked. You're like, oh, like, and I'm, this isn't maybe your story, but like, <laughs> oh, childhood sexual abuse is everywhere. Right. Like, it's just that nobody talks about it. And like, oh, like, if it's just that nobody talks about it. Yeah. Poverty. Right. Neglect. And, and like all of the like less, um, less loud versions of trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. Like. We've talked about like parental mismatch and all this stuff, you know, but anyway, yeah, continue. So I think, um, I came out of a family that struggled in a lot of ways, had a lot of deficits. There was a lot of chaos. Um, as a child welfare worker, frankly, I probably would have removed me and my siblings, Mm. which I think really lends itself to a lot of empathy in this work. Um, because I wouldn't have wanted to be removed from my family. Mm Um, and so I think looking back, there were a lot of deficits and I think, you know, the reality is, is I think as you get older, you look at your parents in a more holistic and human way Mm -hmm. and my parents did the best they could with what they had Mm -hmm. and it caused harm Mm -hmm. in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, and then I also think that I had a lot of protective factors, um, I spent a lot of time with my dad. My dad was kind of my person while he was on this planet. And he was also, you know, he perpetrated intimate partner violence. And I loved him. And I was never afraid of him. 
Um, my daughter's named after him. I have a tattoo of his handwriting on my wrist. It's my favorite mm. one. And so I think growing up and be able to kind of like hold all of those competing truths at the same time really allows me to do this work in a much more meaningful way. That's supposedly like the highest level of spiritual development. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, like truly, I have not yet found like which philosopher or psychologist or whatever said this, but like being able to like hold competing truths, that's like literally when you've ascended <laughs> and, and you've done enough work. <laughs> I just thought that maybe you I did paid, that when you were like 12. Yeah. Like I just thought that maybe I paid therapists enough money. Um, I mean, I think also like I am naturally kind of a bright and curious person. Um, my first romantic partnership lasted a really long time as a teenager. And it was actually one of the healthier relationships I had seen up until that point. And so I do think that, um, you know, all of these things are protective factors mm. because like I didn't get in with the quote unquote wrong crowd where mm. I could have. Um, and I think that I look at a lot of the families that I work with and feel very kind of like you can feel it. If a couple things would have gone different in my life, we could totally switch places. Right. And I think that allows me to do my work in a better, more empathetic and humane way, yeah. which I think is hard to do when you've been doing work like this for this long. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's so important. And that's something that like has been really important in my tra career trajectory too. Yeah. It's like you just take away like a couple of pieces of, or like it's just a stack of cards. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, you remove that one. And all of a sudden, like I'm, I'm, I am you, you know, right. I am my, my patient and understanding that, it's really hard, especially after working in the field for a long time to like continue to humanize the people in front of you. Um, that's why this podcast is called Jaded, <laughs> right? Um, but like making that effort and like continuing to remember that and, and be connected with yourself in that way, I think is really, really, really cool. It also lends itself to like a less hierarchical, patriarchal kind of like approach to like relationships with the people that you're working with. Like we're all just human. Remember that. And like yes. as you approach, because that's, I think, just the worst when people separate themselves mm -hmm. so fully from their the potential relationships that they could have, like, you know, at work and, you know, in your job. Mm -hmm. Ugh. Yeah. Well, and absolutely. And I think also like child welfare can lend itself to be a very deficit based system. Mm -hmm. You know, like we are in paternalistic, mm -hmm. you know, we, I mean, depending on who you're talking to, we're both the hero and the villain, but mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times the story that we tell ourselves when we're doing this work is, um, you know, like we're going into these, families where they need help and they need support and we're right. the tool and this and that. And it kind of is like the reality is we're all just kind of bumping along next to each other, mm -hmm. trying to do better today than we did yesterday. Um, and I think it's funny because people always talk about how my job is the worst job. And I literally cannot imagine doing anything else. Did you know that when you were like, going to school for the first time where you like, I know what I want to be when I grow up. No. So when I, like, I remember in kindergarten, we were talking about like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I then at that point wanted to be the president. <laughs> um, <laughs> and my teacher was like, Oh, you could totally be the first lady. And I was like, cool. Does she make the decisions? Yeah. 
And she's like, no. And I was like, okay, well then I want to be the president and I can like totally get a first lady (laughs) or, you know, like, I can't believe your kindergarten teacher told you you could be first lady. That's so insulting. (laughs) It was the (laughs) eighties. And so I remember being like, no. The only thing worse than the nineties. Right. (laughs) Like I want to be president. And I told my dad like, hey, like I want to be president. And when I grow up, how many other girls have been president? He's like, none, but I bet you could be the first. And I was like, dad, you have to be like 35 <laughs> to run for president. By the time I'm 35, there's going to be all the women presidents. Oh, yeah. little optimistic. Oh, uh, yeah. So sweet. Um, And so I think I kind of pushed away from social work for a long time. Um, actually did my undergrad in criminal justice. And as I was kind of doing that, I realized that from my perspective, that aspect of like a professional career path felt too reactive. Mm. And I was like, I mean, what happens before the person commits the crime? Like, no, we need to like deal with them before we get, you know, and then, and it kind of became this thing. And then I answered an ad because I looked for jobs in the newspaper. <laughs> like so, and Craigslist oh on God. a desktop. <laughs> With um, yeah. So I, when I was graduating from undergrad, I got recruited by like a bunch of different police departments because they would like, if you were in a certain top personnel of your class, they would give your information out with your permission. And I remember thinking like, I've got two big of a mouth like I'm gonna get myself killed um, and there was this ad that was like do you want to help teenage girls and I'm like hell yeah yes <laughs> like I have been a feminist since like obviously kindergarten so like I want to help teenage girls I'm gonna make a difference and then I think I took a job like my first direct care job I think I was making like ten dollars an hour Wow. and I had to take a pay cut from the receptionist job I had to like work through college oh my god to go work And my dad, who was very much a capitalist Republican, Mm. was like, obviously, you didn't major in, like, business or anything worth a good goddamn. Yeah. Because why are you doing that? And I'm like, how much could I pay you to go to a job that wasn't fulfilling? He's like, a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, like, how do you think, like, we afford to live here? And, like, I afford to pay for you. And, like, I just paid for a whole college degree. And you're really flushing it down, like, the toilet. Oh, my God. Um, And then I just kind of fell in love. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's so amazing because teenage girls are my literal worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're hard. They're hard. Um. And super rewarding. Like I still have kids who are now adults that I'm in touch with from that job. What? Yeah. Wow. And they're amazing human beings. Like they're just amazing human beings. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I'm super curious about like every step of this career journey that you've like every single one. I know. I'm not sure where to start. Like I. Okay. Maybe. Can you talk about like what it's like to do direct care? I mean, yes. this is a, also like a podcast about problems, right? So like what, because you are full of enthusiasm and bright and shiny, mm-hmm. even after all of this. And so like, how, 
like what have been the biggest struggles that you've had to like figure out how to overcome? Is that like too big of a question? I don't know. No, I think so for me, like the reality is, is that I have accepted that every day I work in a system that I want to tear down and reinvent. Um, Every day I go into work, I work in a system that causes trauma, that causes harm. It says it fixes it. And in reality, there are so many ways that we perpetuate systems trauma on people, that we perpetuate moral injury on the people who are working within our system. Um, And I have seen it, like my work in conjunction with other people literally save people's lives. Mm. And I think that right now I have families where I think about our, the way that I manage this intervention can have a positive impact on this family for literally generations. Mm. And that, that is meaningful and that is important. Um, that is such a cool long view to have. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's so important. And I feel like recently I, I have become more aware of like intergenerational trauma. I mean, I mm-hmm. think it was kind of like in the back of my head, but it feels like it's more public right now. Um, and like, and I remember like doing work around my own family stuff and being like, well, I can't really blame like my parents. Like they had their parents and I can't really blame them because they had their parents before that. It goes all the way back. Yeah. Back to like the original sin of like the (laughs) the first time that man hit woman or something. And we're like all like literally just doing our best. Yeah. 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 And, And I think that I don't, I think that, you know, there are situations too, like I have a really strong family bias. So like I have a strong bias towards not removing children. I, um, professionally am willing to tolerate more risk than a lot of other people. Cause I think that sometimes our, our system, you know, there's liability in it. And Mm. it's hard to kind of talk about that when you're talking about children and families and people's lives. But if we intervene and we intervene too much, we can cause trauma. Mm -hmm. If we don't intervene enough, children can be hurt or killed. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of this balance between what is, you know, like what Goldilocks and the three bears. Like this <laughs> one's too hot. This one's too cold. This one's just right. And we're constantly trying to do the just right. And a lot of times in the moment you don't know, you don't really know if that intervention is the right one. You're just hoping. Mm. That sounds Yeah, how familiar. could you? Because exactly, I know. It does. But how, yeah, how could you know? Everyone is different. Everyone's going to receive your interventions in a different way because they're different people. Yeah. And it doesn't work for everybody. And so working with people and trying to figure out the best way and the right level of, of intervening is like a... I know you said that you don't art. like consume child welfare media, but <laughs> did, did you watch or hear about like the Gabriel... Fernandez documentary like how did that hit the child welfare workers can you describe what that is this to those that don't know a documentary that I think it was called like the trial of, I don't remember the trials of Gabriel Fernandez it yeah. was on Netflix yeah and it came out maybe a year or two ago and chronicled like the history of this little boy that like had the worst possible fate and ended up dying from mm, like long-term okay, yeah. injuries that were inflicted by his caregivers but but, you know, I remember watching it and I 
if, if I recall correctly, it kind of like tried to take both sides a little bit. And yeah. it's like, yes, and how how could you know? Like you just, you don't always, you don't always know. So I did not watch that. Good for you. Yeah. I did not. And I purposefully avoided it. And I know some people who did. Um, But I do think for me, what happens in our, so typically child welfare can be like a very closed system. We have like big, strong, heavy walls. And a lot of it has to do with confidentiality. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we hide behind confidentiality. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, and the trials of Gabriel Fernandez and in situations like that where that happens, if a child dies, what I think we are we're inclined to do is take individual child welfare workers, hold them responsible mm-hmm. and never once question the system that allowed that to happen. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think when you're in the system, what you realize is, is that individual social workers aren't making these decisions. Right. This isn't like I can't just willy nilly like go out and pick up a kid because I feel like right. <laughs> excuse me right <laughs> your child's wearing crocs and that is a crime <laughs> against humanity <laughs> um and so I think that like what happens is though is that then the individual workers or supervisors or like middle management becomes kind of the the sacrificial lamb when exactly. in reality like we have a whole system that's built mm-hmm. around this mm-hmm. and if a child dies, like I've always hated that, like, oh, it slipped through the cracks, especially like in regards to our work. Right. Because I'm like, that slipping through the cracks is a human. Right. Right. Um, and I think in our system, the reality is, is that there are a lot of roles where you can afford a margin of error. Mm-hmm. And in our system, that margin of error is human beings. Mm-hmm. And so there's needs to be kind of like a zero tolerance for that and our system isn't designed for that right right and I think what happens too is like and we're talking about like systemic issues we're dealing with CPS is a system of last resort I can't say like oh I'm sorry we're all full of abuse and neglect today we're not taking any new cases. <laughs> right. Like, right. I'm sorry. Our social workers are really overloaded and there's no new cases today. So right. have fun. Um, and I think what happens too is we are working with people who are, you know, statistically speaking, lower socioeconomic. We are working with a higher proportion of like people of color. Um, we are working with people who are struggling with mental health. We are working with people who are struggling with substance abuse and poverty and those populations don't get funded well. Right. No one wants to give you a bunch of money to work with poor brown people who are struggling with addiction. I was just having a conversation with someone where I was delighted to be holding my own, but they said, how are we going to solve the homeless population? And I said, give, give them housing. Yeah. And they said, well, you can't just give someone something for nothing. Yes, you can. And yeah. I was like, wait, what? Yeah. That's yeah. so stupid. We do it all the time. Yeah. We do it all the time for rich white people. Yes. You know? And I just, it it boggles the mind. But, I mean, there's there's systems level and then there's like entire cultural identity level exactly. work that needs to, that I think is being dismantled right now. And it's right not now. for nothing. It's for the health of people and for 
the community and for society for everything. It's not for nothing. And some people need more help. Why are we so focused on? I hate that my, so much. My rationale ended up being like, okay, so you are afraid that a a person who is currently without a home is going to rob you. That's mm-hmm. your big fear. So why don't we give them the support and then they won't rob you? Not yes. that I think that people who are without homes are robbers. Right. I was trying to like meet their internal logic mm-hmm. and just be like, okay, like this would solve your problem too. Exactly. Yeah. What did yeah. they say? Did they have a response? They shut their damn mouth. <laughs> well, the and best I, response of all. Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like we deal with that a lot too, where they're like, like from my perspective, the re- like for me, if you have a choice between money and a human, you choose the human. Ob- obviously, and and like food, clothing, shelter, all of these things. Like when you're, I can't, we can't touch people's trauma. We can't touch complex trauma when they don't have a place to sleep. Right. When they don't feel safe. When they don't have enough food. Um. And. It is so fascinating to me how people act like, oh, well, we can't just, we, like you're saying, we can't just give them, ha- yeah, we can. Mm-hmm. We actually, we can. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we would all be better off for it because mm-hmm. like dehumanizing another person doesn't speak volumes about them. Mm-hmm. It speaks volumes about you. And when you're dehumanizing other people, like you are chipping away at your own humanity in a way that you may not even recognize or know but like no person deserves like those Sarah McLaughlin commercials with like the dogs and stuff, you know? Oh my God. Like I can't even watch that. And no. I'm like, I don't want a dog to be outside. Yeah. Yeah. But we have like accepted that it's okay for these people who we have deemed undeserving. Yeah, exactly. That's it. To be outside. Right. Right. And I think like, I mean, I'm, I've, an eight-year-old, and I think we talked about this a little bit, he has, like, kind of this big heart for people who are experiencing homelessness. And um, I've had a lot of people who are like, oh, he's just really sensitive. And I'm like... He has retained his humanity. Right? Yeah, like, no, he doesn't... He's, like, not buying into the same bullshit that we're all buying into, that this is okay and normal. Like, we'll come home... Like, we came home during the winter, and it was raining, and he was like, Mom... There are people who are sleeping outside and like just walked inside. And I just was like, oh, my God. Right. Like if, if that doesn't wreck you, right. like you need to, we need to talk about that. Like we need to we need to go down that road. Yeah. <laughs> I like how he just dropped that on you yeah. and then walked inside like, OK. Right. And then was like, what are we having for dinner? You know, like whatever. Like, and I and so I think that like, yeah. We have to respect people. And I think that in this work, you work with people who the large portion and swaths of our society feel are undeserving. Right. Or are bad. Right. Or don't deserve their kids. And I'm like, I've never met a parent who set out to abuse and neglect their child. I was just thinking about that in the shower the other day where I have all my work thoughts. (laughs) Oh my, brilliance. Brilliance happens for me in the shower. Um, But like that that like tool in the toolkit of Mm -hmm. like remembering that each person in front of you was once like somebody's newborn baby. And like, like I'm sure there are some cases where that parent didn't love the baby that just came out. Like I, I know that happens, yeah, but not often. No, not at all. And like, 
when you know we see people who are who've been struggling for a really long time and um are stinky and like you yeah. know haven't had a shower in a long time and don't want to take a shower and like and and then just like looking if you actually look into somebody's eyes then you can like transport back to like the humanity of that person and exactly. like, I don't know I feel like I'm saying this in a weird way but like it's so precious yeah and like so important and I feel like not a tool that I was raised with to like remember other people's humanity like I had to like get that later I'm yeah. really happy for your kiddos <laughs> I I would like to give them enough dysfunction to be funny, <laughs> but not enough to have to spend as much on therapy in their lives yeah. as I have, you know? Yeah. But I think that, and I think that like, that's the challenge in this work. Like we're dealing with people who are struggling with things immensely and that can result in behavior that is you know, dysfunctional or abusive. And a lot of times in our role, we can really be the target of it. And I think if you are in this role and not doing your own work, it's easy to like, we hold so much power in people's lives mm -hmm. and it's easy to not join with them with that power. It's easy to kind of like use that power over them or um, in other maladaptive ways that really aren't helping. Um, because again, like we're just humans. Mm -hmm. And when you like descend into dysfunction and trauma for large portions of your day, every single day, you have to shore yourself up to deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. And do the work. I'm wondering how you have gone from like direct care into like policy and then like back to direct care and stayed who you are. <laughs> Like we, we were, Julia and I were talking about this before mm -hmm. you got here and then when you got here as well, but like when people ascend into like administrative or like more kind of like off, yeah, uh, you know, away from like direct care, right? Um, they either were already monsters or they turned into monsters. I don't a know lot of what the time. The, yes. <laughs> it's yeah. so weird. And you get amnesia about like, like yeah. when I was in that position it's like no when you were in that position you struggled just as much as the people who are struggling right now yeah right right yeah um so I kind of in order to come back to the county that I work in it's a very small county so I had to take a direct practice role mm -hmm. um to get my foot in the door um and it has been such an amazing reminder to me like I've kind of first of all like I took the role before the pandemic hit and I've got kids and it works. I mean, because I can do direct practice and I like direct practice. Mm. And what this last like year and a half has reminded me of is what a privilege it is to do this work. Mm. Um, and I had, as much as I felt like in my other roles, I wasn't detached. I had become a little detached and got a little bit of that amnesia right. of like, well, when I was in the field, now I'm back in the field and I'm like, nope, still rough. <laughs> still rough. I've never, and I think in this role too, like I've never worked so hard at a job to have everybody around me think I suck. Mm. Like every kid, every parent, most attorneys, the judge, my boss, <laughs> my boss's boss, 
Like all the service providers, like we don't get back to them in enough time. We don't do enough. My paperwork is never detailed enough. I'm guessing this is because you do a really good job. (laughs) I I don't know, but I think, I mean, I think I feel like that is what goes against the grain so much though, that it's like, uh, it's what I got in trouble for when I was working on a med surge unit. Like, Mm -hmm. Um, excuse me, Andrea, can you please spend less time with your patients? And it's like, oh, so I can do some fucking paperwork for right. you? Yeah. Like, sure. No, my life is So like I can paperwork. check off those yeah. fall risk boxes that you yeah. implemented a new policy on? Like, you got it. Let right. me just ignore the person with their call light on. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and I think, like, I think that's the unique thing, like, in your role and in my role is – not only am I in a system that perpetuates trauma with the people that we're supposed to be helping, it also perpetuates trauma against the helpers. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I, you know, as a social worker, we are kind of, our ethics are that, you know, we have an ethical obligation to help marginalized people. We have an ethical obligation to stand up for social justice issues when we see them. Mm. Um, and that makes us a really big pain in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> so like you get a bunch of social workers together that are passionate about things. And we just like, will talk shit to whoever, like bark up whatever chain, tell people like, this is an unethical way to manage or like, we don't agree with this directive and this is why. Um, and, it's still really hard. It's hard to maintain your sense of self. It's hard to maintain your professional ethics and serve these families, you know, like, and your administration. Mm. So how did it feel being like outside of direct care? Like, can we back up for just one minute and describe what direct care means? Like, what does that look like in your role? And what slash what's your role? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't know if we no, even please. Said it. Yes. <laughs> so right now I work with um, families who have had children who have court involvement. So either their kids have been removed from them, or and are in foster care either with family members or in kind of like congregate care settings if mm. appropriate, or are in what used to be called foster homes that are now called resource homes. Oh. Yeah. Okay. The pendulum will swing back. Um, (laughs) And so, um, or sometimes we have families that are court involved, but their children are still with them. So we're concerned enough to be court involved and their kids are with them. Um, And so basically I provide case management service interface with community partners for like therapy, substance abuse, treatment, housing, um, school, everyone, and right. are operating kind of as a de facto legal parent, case manager, and am very low in the hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> so we're at the bottom of the hierarchy with like a lot of work. And the I think in regards to child welfare, so child welfare is at the bottom of most people's list of cool jobs. <laughs> and in child welfare, my job is still the shittiest job. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> by other child welfare workers, like, I don't want to do that. Um, and we'll work with families kind of longer term. So typically it's like six months to usually around like two years. And it's while the court is involved in yeah. some way. Yes. Okay. 
And and the goal is reunification yes. in theory. For me, like I said, I have a really strong bias. Um, I believe wholeheartedly that what is worse than an abusive or neglectful parent is the government as a parent. Right. Um, and I think our outcomes show that. So, um, and again, this is an indictment of the system, not of the people who are working within the system. But the reality is, is that our outcomes for children who are in long-term foster care mm. are abysmal. Mm. And any parent who operated the way that we operate, we would be worried. What do you mean by abysmal? Like, what's an example of an outcome? So typically, I mean, our, the kids who age out of the foster care system are more likely than those in the general population to be homeless or addicted to drugs. Um, they have high, higher teen pregnancy rates, suicidality. Mm. Um, we don't raise children well. I mean, I think about this, like when we are working in psych emergency and we get a, we, you know, get a new patient, we take their history, we talk to them about, you know, where they came from and where they were born and blah, blah, blah. And, and as soon as the words foster care come out of their yeah. mouth, it's like, it, it feels like a, oh, even yeah. though I don't actually know what that looks like, it feels like a. Like, well, you can automatically assume trauma history yeah. and mm-hmm. other very, I mean, that that is just being involved, even if the experience was great or whatever, it's traumatizing. Yeah. And, and when so you we can assume that. And we work with kids often who come from, I guess, resource homes or yeah. short-term rehabilitation. Residential, residential treatment programs. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I don't know which is which necessarily, but, um, and, and, you know, I always wonder like, is there a way to like make that particular system better or is it just about dismantling everything so that that system doesn't have to exist because putting a bunch of, of rowdy, abused, traumatized kids in one home together, it's not like, we're all going to sit around and sing Kumbaya or whatever. Yeah. Like it's, it's not a, that, that's scary. Yeah. And I think like, I think that's a lot of trauma systems interacting on each other <laughs> in one house or facility. Right. And I think also like the reality is, is that the way that our laws are written, they're slanted very much towards parents. It's very difficult to have your child come into the care of CPS. Right. Which it should be. It should be. I mean, government intervention into the family dictating how you parent should be done with significant restraint. And so if you have a, someone who, what did I, I had one kid, not a kid anymore. She's an adult. And she called herself a survivor of systems. Oh, wow. And I, I don't know, like it just crumpled me a little mm. because I was like, yeah, you're right. And, um, in order to come into foster care, you have to be abused or neglected. Mm-hmm. So there's already trauma mm-hmm, right? before we get there. Yeah. And then when you're in our system, and this is why. So the funny thing is, is like another aspect of child welfare that people don't really love is placements. And I'm super passionate about it. Um, because. What do you mean by placement? Like finding foster homes or short-term residential treatment programs. Okay, right. Um, So instead of doing like the direct intervention with families, you're out 
you're providing a supportive function to those social workers by locating placements for kids who need to be removed from their home. Mm-hmm. I guess I've ju- I'm, it's just clicking for me now. Like yeah. a foster home is just any home where foster parents have decided to like take in a yes. kid. Okay. Don't, don't ask me why that took me so long <laughs> to like sink in, but <laughs> if anyone else was lost. <laughs> and so for me, like when you're looking for a placement for a child, like the reality is, is goodness of fit is important. You know, not, I think what we call it sometimes is like some people have a heads and beds mentality. I've got five kids. I've got five beds. They need to go here versus I've got this child. Right. Who's a human. Mm-hmm. These are their needs. What's the best place for them? Um, and we're supposed to put kids in the least restrictive, most home-like environment, which is a fancy way to say, like, if they can stay home with their parents safely with some support, you need to do that. If you have a family member, you need to do that. Mm-hmm. Because also research shows that kids do better with family. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't, and they can be maintained with resource parents or in what we used to call foster homes, then you need to do that. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, when you're doing though that matching, you can. You can get into, like, numbers in, numbers out because there's so much to do. There's just right. always so much to do. Right. Instead of being like, I'm making a decision that could change the trajectory of this person's life. Well, and I imagine there's pressure yeah. with the heads and heads, oh, right? Yeah. Like, okay, this is your caseload and this person needs to be placed now. I yes. hate that. I hate that so much. Well, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think it's, it, it reminds me of our role when oh, yeah. we're finding hospital mm-hmm. beds and mm-hmm. inpatient units. Exactly. And it's yeah. like, we will get input from people that's like, Hey, I had a really, really, really bad experience at such and such hospital. Please yeah. don't right. send me there. But if they're the only one with the opening, then that's what we do because we have a responsibility. It's like a, a legal kind, I don't know, an just, obligation to, to expedite yeah. care, right? Mm-hmm. Um, instead of letting them waste away in an emergency room, which I, which makes sense. And yet, like, if we know that such and such hospital tends to do better with trauma or with eating disorders mm-hmm. or with, you know, whatever, like, specific stuff you've got going on, which isn't always the case. A lot of these places are, like, puppy mills of mental health you know (laughs) kind of like and medicate out yeah yeah um but you know it's it it breaks my heart every time that like somebody has a clear need and there is a clear match and yet I can't like make that happen yeah I don't know I lately I just I I won't do it there you go (laughs) I just you know what I'm gonna hold out I'm it's gonna be a longer length of stay I probably shouldn't say this it's gonna be a longer length of stay but I'm not gonna send this person like sometimes like with children Mm -hmm. like there there is a public health crisis where there are no inpatient psychiatric adolescent bed there just aren't enough beds like when we need hospitalization for a minor it mm-hmm. is almost impossible and a Which, lot of the places that not been addressed because this i don't has know been an issue forever there have been so many news articles about psychiatric boarding particularly for adolescents right it's horrible <laughs> um and and because of that a lot of the um a lot of the inpatient units are very far away and that's devastating when the kiddos parents don't have a car. Yes. Can't yes. get there. Don't know. Like they don't speak English. How they is can't my kid going to come home? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm, I'm not doing that to a fan. Like I'm not doing that. I'm going to, uh, sorry. I've, the facts didn't go through. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I worked in we Monterey County, 
that there is, there was no adolescent unit there. And so like the closest adolescent units were like literally over a hundred miles away. Yeah. And then I think like Warren Beatty's sister gave like a hundred million dollars to the hospital to open an adolescent psych facility. Which they printed is like, some flyers and they. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very cool. Like, thank you, super, super rich people for right. sometimes doing cool things. But um, we won't talk about the ethics of accumulating that much wealth. No, no. Yeah. That's, I mean, uh, that's, that's another podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But yeah, I think, I mean, we we run into similar problems. And like I said, for example, like I have a strong bias to keeping kids at home. And sometimes that might mean that instead of doing the minimum required visits, I need to go out and see you more. Mm-hmm. Um, and Or I need to put all these other things into place to facilitate that. Um, and that's a harder answer than putting someone in a licensed home where presumably like they've gone through background checks, they're trained, you know, they get reimbursement. Um, and... You don't go to bed at night wondering if your kid's safe, mm-hmm. you know, and so sometimes it feels better to have your kid in a licensed placement because they've been with a family who's kind of hanging on the edge so much. Um, but the reality is, is that you have to balance that decision with the impact on child. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge difference between I had a social worker who came out and visited me, you know, instead of once a month, like what, every week for six months. And I was taken out of my home and put with strangers mm-hmm. and left there while my parents tried to get better. Which, and then the trauma on parents. Right, right. Every Everybody's getting traumatized. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think, like, I, I was a much better parent before I had kids. <laughs> 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 like, when I was younger and had just started in this work, and I think to myself, like, oh, the dumb dumb suggestions that you gave to people like well have you tried yeah they've tried it um, <laughs> and I think about like there's a huge difference between you know that version of me and the version of me as a mother because I know that I'm dealing with the most precious human beings in these people's lives mm. and like if I'm gonna have your kids and be part of the de- deciding factor that removes them from you it's going to be because I had no other choice. And I mean, I don't know. So there are some aspects of this job. Like you will never get over like hearing the cry of a parent for a child or a child for a parent. Like there are those moments in this role that stick with you and they should because with the power comes the responsibility. I'm looking at you as if you are some kind of superhuman yeah. robot. You know, it's yeah. like I like that that battle between like what's easier for me versus like what's best for the person in front of me mm-hmm. feels super real. And like with the huge caseloads that people have. I mean, in psych emergency too, like we we can't just close down because we have yeah. too many people. Like, like, oh, I'm sorry, you're going to yeah. have to want to be suicidal tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Like I I guess we're just going to put more mattresses on the floor like this is how it's gonna go down you know and um I mean I guess technically you can like go red and they have to divert to other places if it's like 
really bad, but, <laughs> um, but still everyone's getting fucked. So, um, but like the, yeah, that battle between like what, what, how resourced am I mm-hmm. to be able to manage all of this, do work ethically the way that I want to, and that I know is worth, worth that amount of effort. Yeah. Um, and to not like slide into like I therapy. Great. Okay. So that's more time that you have to spend yeah, yeah. <laughs> than like outside of work going to therapy. Like, what do you think it would take to like, like when you're training new baby social workers, like what, what are your recommendations? Cause I also need them. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I do want to say that like in my family of origin, my life experience really lends itself to a lot of codependent traits. <laughs> um, and so it takes a lot of dysfunction to be able to, you know, like my brain has had to be bathed in trauma for so long to be able to get me to compartmentalize in the manner in which that I do. Yeah. Um, so you get like a really dark sense of humor. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a therapist. I do secondary trauma when my stress gets like super out of control. I and social we have the social workers we like to talk. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly debriefing mm-hmm. and we're constantly talking about feelings <laughs> and like, what did this client interaction bring up for you? And can you tell me more about that? And I'm curious when they said this, where did you feel it in your body? Mm. Um, and I think we're really good at that professionally, but I think sometimes if you talk to the people in our personal life, they're like, yeah, I had a feeling the other day and Elizabeth was like, yeah, no, no, I'm off the clock. <laughs> um, <laughs> like the only people in my life that get that exception is my kids. Um, but I think like there are literally days where we have conversations with each other and it's like, get a glass of water, eat real food and just put one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you sometimes in this work, it's survival. Yeah. Sometimes we get to thrive. Sometimes we're just in survival. And, you know, working in child welfare on the best day is overwhelming. Working in child welfare during a prolonged global pandemic in an under-resourced <sighs> tiny county, you know, where we're running like 33% staffed is no is hell. No. I was going to say, when you make the decision to like visit kids more, um, put more work in to try to preserve their place at home, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, you just know she's not, she's not getting any more resources to be able to do that. You're just sort of carving out pieces of yourself to try to make the system better and to try to make sure that you get the best outcomes for your kids. And that's saintly and it's really awful that, that you know what the answer is, is more time with the kids, putting in more work, Uh setting up more resources, not being 33%, not being 33%. Why are we doing this? Yeah. It's so awful. Well, and the people who pay the price are the, are the families. And economically, I imagine it's quite likely that the expenses of having more kids in resource homes would outweigh like paying an extra social worker, you know, like or the, even the long term costs and the long term co- exactly. yeah, of people being without homes and of people use you know miss or overutilizing yeah, well, psychiatric like, emergency mm-hmm. services and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 
We need to front load. Why did, why, why? <laughs> I'm going crazy. We know the answer. Yeah. It's more resources and more help and like, why aren't we doing it? It's, well, it's like prioritizing people over profits. Right. And I think for me, in my system, like what in my system, what makes me beat my head against the wall is how can I pay an STRTP like ten to fifteen thousand dollars a month, or you know whatever the rate of reimbursement is, depending yeah. on your county, depending on the program, blah blah blah, or like even a resource family. I always think like if we were to take those financial resources and reroute them to the actual family of the child, right? Oh, duh. You know, like come on, guys, wait. Why hasn't that happened? Oh, because we can't give somebody something for nothing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Then, it, then it would look like we were rewarding people for having bad abused behavior. their kids. Right? Yeah. Yes, the right? bad behavior. It would excuse. be a PR nightmare. Yeah. Because because people can't look at this stuff. They, they just stay away from it behind their picket fences and don't want to acknowledge its reality. And so it's like, yeah. no, no. Let's all work on holding com- like competing truths at the same time. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to be spiritually developed? Come on, you guys. Right? <laughs> it's fun. I have a growth opportunity for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like in in this work, especially as a social worker in this work, because I think like not not all places require you to have a social work degree. Not all places require certain things. But in this work as a social worker... I have a professional and an ethical obligation to these families. And I always start my workout with people with like, hey, this is how I work. What works best for you? You have a lot at stake. Mm. What that means is that I owe you transparency, authenticity, and we're going to have a lot of hard conversation. And that's like hard to operate like every day to have like these really difficult conversations where you're talking to people about like, if you don't change this behavior, I'm going to have to take steps to end your legal relationship with your child, you know, and hold that for them and also recognize, you know, clear as kind. Like I have to be honest with you because you have so much at stake. I feel like there's like a miss, like, and for it's, there's this idea that people in helping professions are like, smiley and supportive and that like that's what therapy is it's like getting to talk to your best friend or you know (laughs) like like, this idea and like and and it has in some ways it doesn't sound like it has necessarily in child welfare but like in nursing it's a customer service industry now Mm -hmm. right and so like it is very much like plaster that smile on your face and like me not so much in psych because we know we're going to get shit reviews anyway (laughs) nobody's coming there voluntarily no um but, but but I mean that is that's truth. That's mm-hmm. not living in the like, you know, rose colored glasses world. That's like, Hey, I'm actually here to help you. And this is like how we're going to get our boots dirty and like do it, you know? Right. And we like, so we're also like a system that operates within other systems. So we are like the child welfare system that's operating within a court system that has these time frames of like, if your child is this age or under, it's six months. If your child is this age or older, you have 12 months. And we're trying to like. What weird cutoffs. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. So there were a lot of like court systems that didn't have those cutoffs before. And you ended up with kids like kind of languishing in foster care. Right. And so 
it's interesting to watch how the pendulum swings because it, you know, was that way where you had like unlimited time, but then you could have a three-year-old who ended up aging out of foster care, which is not helpful. And then there's this way where we prioritize, like we're prioritizing a children's, a child's right to permanence. Mm -hmm. You have a right to permanency. And we are asking people with chronic mental health and substance abuse issues and multi-generational trauma who are living in poverty to dismantle lifelong systems in six months. Well, when you put it like that. (laughs) Yeah, like, and so I'll have parent, you know, we'll have situations where I'm like, no, like this person's been battling a heroin addiction for a decade plus, obviously not like a specific person, but in general. Right. The fact that they're showing up sober enough to care for their kid three times a week in a one hour visit is a goddamn miracle. Right. Six months isn't enough. Right. You know, and you're having to kind of like answer to court partners and then kind of at the end of the day, you know, look at your kids that you're working with and try to be able to tell them that, you know, I did the best for you that I could, that I knew how, and this is why I made this decision. When you go back into policy, (laughs) Elizabeth for president. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I'll just have to tell my husband I need to get a first lady. (laughs) (laughs) What, what, I mean, like we've discussed one amazing shift that could happen. I mean, I just want to say like, it's so funny. We were reading like a paper about micro, like racial microaggressions Mm -hmm. in school. And we had like this discussion group and people were like, um, hi, yes, we know. Right. We've all known this for a very long time. Can we stop talking about it and like do something? Just do it. I mean, we just had like two more black men, well, a black man and a black boy get killed by police again. And it's like, Hello. Right. We we know. Like, let's fucking do something. It's so maddening. And when you're talking about the system, it's just making me... Like, we, we know, like Julia was saying, we know what the solution is. Yeah. Okay, so... Okay, let me downregulate a little bit. <laughs> um, when you go back into policy yeah. and you change the world, mm-hmm. what do you want to see happen? So... I, from, you know, from my vantage point, um, what is that? Like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Like we don't need to target child abuse and neglect. We need to target poverty. We need to target substance abuse. We need to prioritize adverse childhood experiences where we're wrapping people in support before they get to our system. So by the time you've got to me where your court involved, like not only has someone in the community had to alert us that they were concerned about your child. We then had to go do an investigation. We then had to decide that this was so dangerous that you needed the court to intervene. And for me, what if when the first time you tripped or fall, fell or faltered or your child was going without or you had a deficit we intervened then right then you avoid like even needing me I would like to work myself out of a job yeah and if we target those things and we shore up families that is how we avoid this but you have to value that like as a society exactly yeah. yeah 
I was thinking about this. Um, I mean, it, it's, I think we need to change our definition of trauma, right? To yeah. like, so we can start earlier. <laughs> so we can start before the worst thing has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing some schoolwork. I've been working with a lot of trans and non-binary folks in, in my schoolwork. And, um, and so often the trauma is having been, having their identity be rejected by their parents for such a long time. Um, and by the time I'm working with them, they're young adults and they, you know, have severe mental illness issues. Um, and sometimes don't even recognize like that connection, but like that, that has, that's chronic prolonged trauma that they've been undergoing for years. And again, parents possibly doing the best they could don't understand this, like don't have the resources to be able to. And like, and yet like that is not something that we would like when we get trans and non-binary kids, we don't write a CPS report because their parent misgenders them, you know? Um, but, but there are lots of things we do write CPS reports (laughs) for. (laughs) And often we're writing CPS reports, um, for things like that, that feel kind of bizarre. I remember once it was like a family member had, who was an adult had been cutting with Mm. the adolescent. Okay. Yeah. And so I was like, this feels CPSC and, uh, you know, but I'm like, (laughs) but it doesn't quite fall into like those, those big trauma categories. Um, and then we don't know what happens with our CPS reports. We just well, write them and right. write them and write them. We get, yeah. And you get a nice letter. We usually. get that little letter. You yeah, get a we little do. letter we that we mail. We get a little letter <laughs> only. Okay. So I filed a lot, a lot, of, a lot of reports. Night shift doesn't look at the letters. <laughs> I've only gotten one letter back saying that they were going to like actually open a case. What do we usually say? We say we are offering the family services. Isn't I that usually how we... Yeah, or there's so many little boxes like an investigation was performed and no, you know, mm-hmm. no intervention bias is warranted or whatever it is. Yeah. And then only only one time that I've filled one out and gotten a letter back has it said, "Oh, like we're going to go forward with the investigation." <laughs> well, or you're like, "Hold on, I think there's a typo in here." And I imagine, <laughs> I like, "Oh shit." I imagine when you're working in like the investigation component of child welfare, there's a lot of times when you would want to do something but it like doesn't meet the threshold yes and I have conversations with people about this all the time like we are not like the bad parent police like you have the right to be a shitty terrible parent (laughs) you can be the worst parent you just can't be abusive or neglectful right and like those and again again there's a reason there's a reason that I think like if you look at our system historically, the trauma that we have perpetrated on lower socioeconomic communities, um, people of color, um, the way that we have utilized our power to destroy certain communities, we need to be held to a different standard. We need to have this restraint. We need to have these parameters. And there is nothing more gut-wrenching as a child welfare professional than knowing something's wrong being very, very worried about a child and not being able to prove it or meet that threshold. Right, right. Because you have to do something for us to get involved. We can't just be worried. There needs to be a, a safety concern. Yeah. I mean, what if what if child welfare didn't feel like a, like a penalty to right. the outside community and they could <laughs> reach out to you and be like, 
I'm having a really hard time with this. We need support. Yes. <laughs> what? Yeah, it would be. Well, and a lot of times parents reach out to us and they do need help and support. And our intervention is removing their child from their care, mm. which is terrifying. Mm. We are terrifying. What's everyone's worst nightmare? Yeah. Yeah. Is having your kids taken away from you. Yeah. And I think. I mean, on the flip side of that, you have like educated, passionate, dedicated professionals who are wanting to affect a positive change in the family system, which is like, you know, could start a revolution if done correctly. Um, <laughs> but, just saying. Right. I mean, just, but also like, no, again, no parent sets out to abuse and neglect their child. I have not met parents who want to be separated from their children. I have not met parents Every parent I talk to is like, I love my kid. You know, and love isn't enough. And also, like, if the, can you imagine if they could call us and be like, hey, I'm struggling and I need assistance. Right. I need support. Yeah. I mean, why can't, why, can't, why? Why doesn't that? Who can't, who do they call? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do if you do need help and you need to call? Like, they call our, Un- underfunded community partners. Oh, they call PES. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Right. My kid sucks. Can you keep them for the weekend? Can you keep them? <laughs> well, and like, or what if we did, you know, again, like what if we offered in-home support that wasn't punitive? Or what if we dismantled this belief that you have to do it by yourself or like this nuclear family unit where you like all live together and people don't have support and you just go from one task to another, which I mean, I'm, I totally do. It'd be also. really great if you didn't have to, right? right? I mean, yeah. that's how I feel. Yeah. yeah. I know that was another part of the conversation that happened with that <laughs> unnamed person, but like, we were talking about protective factors and stuff. Mm -hmm. And this person was raised without a father, but had a maternal aunt and her husband in the picture who were also like providing support and helping raise them. And like all of these other like pieces that were like creating a more stable home environment than if it was like just a single mother. Yeah, And it's like, well, that's cool. And like anti-capitalist and like anti-American to like, right. you know, like, and, and a survival strategy, right? Like they were, they were living in poverty and, and so like people had to collaborate. And I look a lot at like the, you know, communities of color, like the Hispanic and Latinx communities who like do live in multi-generational homes yeah. and like the, the protective factor of that. And like, you know, having multiple caregivers and multiple attachment points, more yes. than one attachment. And like sharing that kind of the responsibility. <laughs> yeah. 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 And sharing that responsibility. And I think also like, again, there are communities who have done this better historically. African-American community, for example, like they had informal systems put in place to protect children and they had kinship care going mm. within them informally and when you have like a bunch of, you know, like middle-aged white educated women who want to come in and, you know, <sighs> judge your community from the outside. And I say that as like a middle-aged white educated <laughs> woman, you know, um, but you know, like come in and not understand a community right? Um, to have the power differential that maybe also we don't understand as professionals 
Um, but communities of color have always understood the power differential. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, not using our power in a mindful or just manner. And I think that like we've destroyed communities historically and obviously thank God the pendulum is swinging the other way and children of color are still disproportionately represented at higher rates in our system than they are in the general population. LGBTQIA youth are disproportionately represented in our system and like the work needs to be done Mm -hmm. around that. Mm. okay how do we sign up for your uh, <laughs> crusade <laughs> like i'm gonna go back to school and become a social worker <laughs> i know well and i think like the funny thing is it's like this job is not for everyone mm. and you know like our friend who introduced us it was <laughs> it was not for her i really wanted her to like light up for child welfare in the same way that i do um and unfortunately, I mean, well, fortunately for the population she works with now, she didn't. But well, it's funny. I mean, because like, I am entering like a new career slowly and like um, taking some some child and adolescent focused classes right now. And like that work scares the shit out of me, I think partially because I haven't fully <laughs> dealt with my own like childhood <laughs> stuff. And so like when I say I'm terrified of, you know, teenage girls, I'm terrified of myself oh, as yeah. a teenager yeah. and like the harm that I enacted <laughs> because I was so scared. And, um, and, and there's a piece of my brain that's like, I'm just going to wait till they're already fucked up and then I'll help them, you know? And I love your upstream thinking of like early intervention. And also I think a lot about like the, you know, I, I went to speech therapy when I was a little kid and that felt traumatizing just to get pulled out of class and be mm-hmm other than you know and so like anytime that we're we're putting children into systems early whether it's therapy child welfare whatever like there is like an othering that happens the way things are currently set up and and I don't know how that plays out I haven't read research about that and um I just don't know but like I'm so scared to like get in there because god forbid I cause harm right which is inevitable right right yeah well you just have to face it that unfortunately I mean we all do right it's just part like we talked about this at some point earlier about like realizing the whole thing causes harm like you're gonna trigger some people like you just like you have to yeah just have to figure out how to go forward and right you know I don't know have these have these conversations I don't know well and I also think though that like we are going to cause harm and there is benefit in the repair. Right. Oh you yeah. Know, that like, thing. Yeah. Like it's, did you, you set that off mic. <laughs> you need to say it on mic. Oh, what did I, Oh, about like when you're working with families, we're either building. Oh, oh yeah. That was gold. Yeah, building, yeah. repainting, repairing or sustaining kind of your relationship. And, um, and that's in all relationships yeah, in all relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think also like the reality of this work is that when harm is done interpersonally and in a relationship, which happens in abuse and neglect, the only way to effectively repair that is in relationship. Right. And like, even I think about me as a parent, like I fuck up all the time. Like every, I fuck up with my kids before I get out of bed most days. <laughs> like, like 
My son came in at 6.30 this morning, like, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to talk about, like, his world and the existence of his world. And I opened one eye and was like, you know, bro, you could wake up in the morning and not wake me up. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that, like, oftentimes what we lose sight of is, like, in this quest for perfection is we lose sight of the beauty of repair. Mm. Like, I, I think what had happened, like, a while, like, a few weeks ago... I like lost my shit. Like they had just like, I was at the end of my rope. I was like yelled at them and was like my kids and was like, and I had to come back and be like, Hey, you know, I'm really sorry. Can like, can mom talk to you? I'm sorry. And they're like, well, we should listen. And I said, no, I'm the adult. So regardless of how you're acting, you don't deserve to be yelled at. So like, Mom needs to take a timeout and not a timeout from you, like a timeout for mom to calm down so that I can behave appropriately with you because regardless of what you're doing, you don't deserve to be yelled at. Mm-hmm. And like, I messed that up and I'm probably going to mess it up again. And I like, so we ha- kind of have these things which like, you know, you work on. And I think sometimes in this quest for perfection and obviously not wanting to cause harm that we can lose sight of the beauty of when you do cause harm how you repair that. Um, it's oh, my favorite. It's like when a bone breaks and it grows back stronger. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's my favorite thing that I didn't know how to do until I was 27 years old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just, I like, I literally just had the same situation with my partner. Like I woke him up at 7am. <laughs> eating bagels. <laughs> eating bagels with my best friend at I mean, seven in the morning. <laughs> he came out really grumpy. And then I was like, well, Okay, first, how much time do I want to spend feeling shitty about this? Like right. the harm is already done and I don't need to like, you know, I don't need to stew in it because that's not productive. Um, what can I do to make things right? I can listen. I can I can say I'm sorry and, and I respect your sleep. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that like I won't do that again, you know? Like, yeah. And um, – and like, I, I never mean to cause you harm and, um, and I care about you a lot and I love you and you can have feelings and you don't need to apologize for me causing you harm because that happens all the time where the other person is like, no, no, it's okay. I'm yeah, so it's sorry. Okay. And I'm like, I no. was being grumpy and it's like, no, that was, that was an appropriate response. It's right. please continue to have your feelings. Like, and I will continue to allow myself to be uncomfortable with them and then we'll come to the other side of it. And because I learned how to do that. I haven't had to break up with my boyfriend. (laughs) Right. I sometimes like think back on like different iterations of Elizabeth over the years. And I have to like have a lot of empathy for myself, especially for like the younger versions of me that, you know, maybe were a little less assertive in their communication and a little more aggressive, um, hadn't done the work. And I always like try to think like when I have those thoughts and I'm like, she was going through a lot. And, like, we're all a work in progress. And so I think we were talking about earlier with, like, families that I work with. A lot of times, like, you work with them long term. And in your relationship, in your working relationship, the shit will hit the fan. And everything goes sideways in a way that nobody anticipated or wanted. And they're like, I want a new social worker. (laughs) And, you know, sometimes you're like, I wish I could give you one. (laughs) I'm really fatigued. And so. We're 33%. Right. Yeah. Like, I There were three. Now there's one. Right. There's there's no one in the division right now who I desire to have be abused in the way that you're abusing me. Um, (laughs) 
and I and I think like and that's part of the hard conversations that I'll try to set the stage for in the beginning is I like we were talking about earlier you're either building sustaining or repairing your relationship and I'll say like no sometimes like conflict happens in interpersonal relationships Mm -hmm. and we're gonna get through this and I'll be like hey we had eight months of a really positive working relationship right now is hard you know and you'll have to say things to people like I just removed you I just went to the court and asked them to remove your kids that is hard and and it's hard that I'm a support person for you and from your perspective I've caused you harm and we'll get through it and like I think the beauty of this and it just feels like something that that nobody's into these days (laughs) (laughs) but like the beauty is that the trust and like in my interpersonal relationships like the love that comes after you've gone through repair phases together and come to the other side and realize that like things can be okay again versus spending an entire relationship walking on eggshells just trying for like something bad to never happen you know like it's it's everything yes like that is that is relationships and that's the beauty of it well, I'm like, I feel like the families that we work with. And when you're traumatized and you feel like everyone's going to leave you and abandon you. And then yes. you show, oh, did I just steal your thunder? No, no. But I'm just like, but there's so many aspects of it where I'm like, this has been in your other relationships, you, other relationships, you've been able to explode, cuss people out, retreat, do all of these things and push people away. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is like, <laughs> bitch, I'm not going right, anywhere. Yeah, exactly. You can't get rid of your CPS worker. Um, <laughs> no. But I think it's like, also like, I'm going to show up. I'm going to hold space for your big emotions. Your big emotions don't scare me. When you cross the line into abuse, I'm going to point out that behavior. I'm going to say that's abusive. If you continue being abusive, I'm going to end that interaction. And then I'm going to tell you when I'm going to check in with you again. Like, hey, today's Tuesday morning, and you're telling me that, like, hypothetically speaking, you've met a lot of pieces of shit in your life, and I'm the biggest one that takes <laughs> Totally haven't heard someone say that. And I'll be like, hey, that's really abusive. And they're like, fuck you, you suck. And I'm like, okay. Also abusive. Thank right. You. Yeah, and I'll just say, like, okay, so I'm ending this interaction, and I'm going to check in with you Thursday morning around 10. And so it's like, okay, I can hold your big emotions. I can hold your rage. I can hold your anger. I can hold your grief. I can hold your sadness. We can create space for that. I will give you all the people in your life that can help you kind of walk this path if you want to. And if you cross the line into abuse, I'm going to set a hard boundary. I'm not going to take it personally. I'm going to come back and I'm going to model for you like how to do this, like how we get over the hump. Wow. And sometimes you're like the first person that's done that for someone. Right. Right. And it's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> totally. yeah. That happens like in a really, like in a, in a small way that happens at work sometimes. You know, you ever go yeah. up to a patient and you're trying to like interview them. And, oh, fuck you. Give me a sandwich, you bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is really abusive. You're being really, you can't speak with me. Mm-hmm. You can't speak to me that way. Um, when you decide to stop screaming, I'm at the nursing station. Maybe you can ask me for a sandwich in five <laughs> minutes. And that's just like a thing. So we do get like a little watered down version of that. Obviously our interactions, these are very brief. And so mm-hmm. having that conversation with someone that you've had a working relationship with over a long period of time mm-hmm. is, uh, 
it's an awesome thing, right? It's like mm. huge yeah. and hugely important. And that sounds really hard. Yeah. <laughs> You are my role model. I mean, yeah. like, I, I should I, not be anyone's role model. Well, I feel like I feel like I've been doing like um, the pre-labbing, you know, right. by working in PES. Like the pre, like one of my superpowers is that I'm fairly. Um, I don't have a very fast reaction time. So when somebody throws a cup of water in my face, I kind of just stand there. Um, and then they get terrified. Not, yeah. Hypo- hypothetically. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and I think that's really valuable. I mean, at the risk of me, like maybe getting hit someday, which I would right. love, but um, to be able to, to not, match somebody's reactivity level yeah. yeah and um and like you said like kind of model that like okay like you're having really big emotions and I'm gonna stay exactly as I am and let you continue with them I'm not gonna try and change them or minimize them or amplify them yeah you're just gonna have them and I'm gonna be here but like like Julia said like that over a long term that is my future career direction <laughs> and it is paralyzing to think about. Um, but the, but I mean, it's an amazing useful skill in real life too. I, it might it's also be life. like a dissociative <laughs> skill. Right. I'm not sure. It might be a trauma reaction. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, is it my superpower or is it my trauma? <laughs> Both. Yeah. And the same. Yeah. They, super- they're only maladaptive coping skills when they're maladaptive. <laughs> the rest of the time they were just coping skills. Right. Well, and I think like too, like the reality is, is like even using that lens to working with our families and our kids is people are like, oh, they're this way or they're that way. And it's like a lot of like negative things. And I'm like, that is how this child survived. Yeah. Do you understand? They've survived every single day and that's how they did it. Like, you know, we have a lot of kids who I'm like, you guys, if I had to, if we had to deal with this, like older, educated, resourced, speak the link, like all of these privileges that we have, like this would bring an adult to their knees. Mm -hmm. So this is how this kid survived. And good for them. Like, let's redirect some of these. You know, like, I don't want you, like, you know, cutting forever or, like, doing these other things. But also, they survived. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. served them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Aww. Well, we've hit our way over an hour. <laughs> oh, gosh, <yeah. laughs> Do you have anything that you want to say that we didn't kind of naturally bring up in conversation? We're hiring. (laughs) (laughs) If that wasn't the best pitch (laughs) for a job, a career. You too could be faced with all your own shit in your day, in your face every single day and have to do the hard work. Um, No, I think that, I think our system is flawed. And there's a lot of healing and beauty in it. And I'm hoping like as we do more trauma-informed work, as we do more evidence-based interventions, which are hard to do in social work Mm -hmm. um, or like in child welfare, as that happens, the pendulum can swing for us to be much more of kind of a vehicle for healing within communities. Because I do think, and again, here's that eternal optimism we have the potential to affect positive change in one of the most basic structures in our society. And if our 
system could be a healing agent in the families that we serve, in the communities that we serve. Um, I think we could have like healthier, happier communities for the long term. And that that's my hope for our system. Mm. One day. And the world. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, yeah. I don't know. I believe it's going to happen. <laughs> I am, you know, I'm in the cult of Adrian Marie Brown and I believe in expansive science fiction style, creating our own futures. And like, this is what we're doing. Right. We're just going to manifest it. Yeah. Whatever you can dream and believe in, you can step toward at least. Yeah. Um, I feel better and worse. <sighs> right. <laughs> that's a good place to be look there you go spiritual enlightenment <laughs> the, highest, the highest level <laughs> thank you so much thank you guys um we always end with um what are you grateful for or what's keeping you going or both it could be the same thing right um i think i am grateful for kind of everyone in my life who came together and gave me a chance and loved me when I was less lovable than I am now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think the opportunity to be that for other people is what, you know, keeps me going. Mm. Julia. Um, I, I'm, I'm grateful for <laughs> the farm fresh eggs that Andrea has <laughs> in her fridge. Cause I'm going to make a quiche tonight. Um, I'm also grateful for people like Elizabeth who hold on to <laughs> the optimism and hope for a brighter future and for a better system. Um, that just feels like just after supreme. being in it for 18 years. <laughs> yeah, that's the fucking that's bomb. That's like some, You're the bomb. some newbie Superpower shit. or childhood trauma? <laughs> which one, which is superpower or trauma? <laughs> it's both. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry, I was hijacking yours, Julia. Um, I am grateful uh, for looking through this silly photo album with my grandmother in it and thinking about the work that she did way in a way different time. Um, and that somewhere in this photo album is a picture of me when I was 13. And my friend looked through it with me and they said, I want to know that Andrea. I love that Andrea. And the way that that healed the 13 year old part of myself <laughs> that absolutely hates herself yeah. was magical and beautiful and like opened up this whole new thing. I feel like each, each traumatized age like needs to go through a healing process. And it like started with 13 year old. Um, so that felt really lovely, you know, braces, freckles, weird haircut, all, all the things going wrong, like in a bigger body than I thought was acceptable, blah, reading Cosmo, like destroying myself. Yeah, yeah. And my friend is like, I want to hang out with her. And I'm like, you're traumatized too. <laughs> Our little traumatized 13 year olds could you just like really cute each in other. That picture. It's like a, clearly it's like a, you have a total sleepover vibe going. Yeah. You have your little braces and your little book. Oh, and I'm grateful. <laughs> Julie and I get to do a sleepover today. Yeah, speaking of sleepovers. 
I didn't get myself a hotel. I'm going to I'm gonna sleep with Andrea tonight. I'm super excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to make a quiche and watch some scary movies. I'm so excited. Woo. Non-mental health related. Please. Maybe a psychological thriller, though. Okay. Just save me because you know I default to documentaries. Oh, I, I will 100% save you from that. Yeah. I am total sci-fi. We're going to have... Oh. We're going to have a lot of sci-fi fun. One of my patients told me that I look like um, the actress from The Abyss, Mary Elizabeth Mastri Antonio. And she was like very psychotic, but like has, <laughs> has remembered this between multiple episodes coming to Psych Emergency. Oh, yeah. That's and always so cool when recently that told me again, she's like, The Abyss, you look like <laughs> The Abyss. And I'm like, I want to watch that movie again. <laughs> cool. Is that the actress's name? Anyway, I don't know. Okay, I'm just I'm just killing time now. We got <laughs> we got to call quits. Elizabeth for president. Elizabeth, yes. I love you. If you're looking for a first lady, I'm right here. I can be that person for you. The first Japanese American first lady. Yes, yes, I love it. It's gonna be a good future. Yeah, I'm excited for it. All like, right. wait, let wait, <laughs> stop. <laughs> <laughs> like our pictures on Instagram. <laughs> you can follow us at jaded underscore and underscore sedated on Instagram. You can also email us at jaded.sedated at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. We hear you that our episodes are too long <laughs> and we thought about doing something about it, but we don't know how. So please give us your suggestions on how to stop talking so much. Um, and give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you feel like it. Yeah. And can someone actually email us like how they do things in their county or like a problem that they face? Because we haven't gotten like a single email. And I really want to know like what's going on out there. Somebody please tell me. Hi, like, Virginia. Florida. Uh, Alaska. North Carolina. Ohio. Illinois. You are. Mexico. Can you email us? God damn it. <laughs> we love you. Have we not made that clear? All right. Now we're leaving. Bye. Bye.